Song Voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble. And the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap, and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions, and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Owner Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. Of course, on uh, Aiken FM and here in Alice Springs and Bundwa and also coming to you via the Karma app and online at the website at karma.com.au. Today is Friday. It's the 3rd of December. My name's Kyle Dowling and thanks for tuning in to Strong Voices this afternoon. Coming up on the program today, as part of a worldwide movement to honour domestic violence victims, the Northern Territory's first purple bench has been installed at the Alice Springs campus of Charles Darwin University. Also, Children's Ground has launched a series of Aranda language picture books, which we'll be, which we'll be hearing about uh, a little bit later in the show. Also, Karma journalist Philippe Perez will be joining us uh, near the tail end of the program to wrap up some of the news from throughout the week. But first, the Central Land Council, or CLC, have welcomed the passing of amendments to the Anti-Aboriginal Land Rights Act, saying it will allow Aboriginal-led decisions about the Aboriginal Benefits Account, or ABA. The ABA distributes royalties generated by mining and related activity on Aboriginal land. A new Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation are making decisions about grants and investments, so uh, we'll be hearing a bit more about that from Aranda Man and CEO of the CLC, Les Turner, who spoke to Karma's Philippe Perez. Wera, welcome to Karma, Les. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much for inviting me. The Land Council say that this change to the Act will see a big step towards greater Aboriginal control over the Aboriginal benefits account. How much control will Aboriginal people see? In terms of the legislation that was passed yesterday by the Australian government, Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory have been lobbying to have the Aboriginal benefit account and this new investment account um, to come under Aboriginal control, and that's been happening, you know, for over 30, 40 years, but picked up momentum in about 2015 when the a joint meeting at Kalkaringi between the Northern Land Council and the Central Land Council. Um, <clears throat> talked to the Minister and also put together a policy document in terms of how that could happen and some principles. And in terms of the passing of the legislation by the Australian Government, it puts the control of the Aboriginal Benefit Account back into Aboriginal people's control. And that's a benefit for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. For those who may not know, uh, can you maybe give as simple of an explanation possible as to what the Aboriginal Benefits Account is? 
The Aboriginal benefit account in this new legislation that was passed, the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Amendment Economic Empowerment Bill 21, means that the first time Aboriginal, it'll be an Aboriginal controlled body and decisions will be made by the ABA in Northern Territory and it distributes the equivalence of royalties generated by mining in on Aboriginal land across, across the Northern Territory. And the account will initially be set up and it'll be a whole new entity where it'll employ its own CEO. It will have its own board. Land councils, the four land councils in the Northern Territory will have two members each. There'll be two independents appointed by land councils and there'll be two independents appointed by the government. And they will set up the, the new body and it'll be in terms of a investment fund or endowment fund where investments will be looked at similar to probably the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council that it's got its own endowment fund and in terms of its investments Aboriginal people in New South Wales have been operating that for you know the last 30 years as well and in terms of its investments the similar one that will be set up in the Northern Territory we hope you know would be similar to investments that could be done which uh, make the fund grow and also benefit Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. I will put to you some criticisms criticisms of some of these uh, new amendments that were put in the bill. I noticed that some MPs were saying that uh, they hoped that money that was transferred to the investment corporation from the Aboriginal Benefits Account is not misused and there's uh, that a reasoning that there should also be more allocation of money to communities more generally as opposed to seeing what kind of investments like mining or things like that can be used on land. What would you say to that kind of criticism? I think the criticism is a bit unfounded. I think in terms of the, the investment fund, initially there'd be $500 million put into the account for the entity to manage. Further to that, there's an extra $60 million per year for the next three years in terms of meeting the social and economic stuff in terms of the current ABA grants. And Aboriginal people are accountable in terms of that and the, the new entity will have all the policies and procedures developed in terms of ensuring you know, accountability, transparency around those new arrangements. There's also been some criticism that this new process will give a much more faster pathway to mining to be um, held on people's lands, on traditional owners' lands. Now, you know as much as I do that there is certainly a lot of discussion in regards to the Beetaloo Basin about fracking gas projects there. Do you think that this will give a green light to mining companies and other resources industries that it will be a much more easier process for them to access land? Look, I think it's good to understand that, you know, in the Northern Territory, we operate under two regimes. One's the Aboriginal Land Rights Act in terms of the land granted under that and the processes involved with that. And then we have the Native Title Act and its regime that operates. In terms of 
veto rights um, under the Land Rights Act that can happen and you know be reviewed after five years. In terms of the Native Title Act, there's a right to negotiate, and there's you know procedures in place for both of those regimes. And in terms of traditional owners being consulted, we think that process we got in place and uh, is pretty sound. It doesn't benefit mining companies. It gives us the right to sit down and negotiate and also in terms of if we say no, um, companies can come back in five years' time under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act. In the debate for this bill in the Senate, uh, earlier this week, um, Green Senator Lydia Thorpe opposed this bill. She says that feedback she gets from traditional <coughs> owners and family clan groups in the Northern Territory uh, about this bill uh, is that, quote, communities have had absolutely no idea about this bill and what it will mean to them. What do you say to that? Uh, look, I think it's um, important to tell people the Central Land Council and the other four land council, three land councils in the Northern Territory have been talking about the amendments and the proposal and the passing of the legislation, as I mentioned earlier, you know, for the last 20 to 30 years. Aboriginal people are elected to, say, the Central Land Council by their constituents, and it's a 90-member council, and a lot of consultations with our council and executive has happened and that's in terms of the consultation we think that was uh, good and we also you know encourage you know our elections for central land council is in april next year and it's important for aboriginal people to to get involved on the the council and the election process and uh in terms of us developing this new body and, you know, making sure it works. What kind of projects would you like to see come out of this new arrangement now? I mean, we, we've spoken about investments, but I personally, for Les Turner, what would you like to see? Well, I think it's a bit of a watershed in terms of the new arrangements and it's Aboriginal people making decisions on applications that came from Aboriginal people. And in terms of investments, the way, you know, the structure, there'll probably be, you know, the board, but there's also probably should be, you know, the, in terms of the structure, not trying to have any preconceived ideas, but an investment committee and in terms of advice to the board in terms of its investments and where that should be. And it's probably important aspect that, you know, is in terms of accountability and transparency and making sure there's growth within that fund. And it's um, probably, I go back to the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, and Aboriginal people in control of that fund. And the growth of that fund has been that substantial. And over the years, the fund has outgrown or out the Treasury Corp, New South Wales, uh, each year and you know in terms of us setting up this new entity the whole purpose was will be to grow the fund and I think we'll put in the appropriate you know frameworks and policies and procedures to ensure that. Mr Turner on to another topic you would have seen that laws that would have meant 
IDs would have to be presented at the ballot box have now been scrapped by the Morrison government. You at the CLC, as well as the Northern Land Council, were very vocally against this uh, legislation and had said that there wasn't enough consultation in regards to it. Uh, what's your reaction to this latest development? Well, I'm glad the you know Australian Parliament has got rid of that proposed legislation because it was not helpful in terms of um, Aboriginal people in terms of our voting and it was calling into question you know I think um, that legislation might have been a bit racially based could have been aimed at you know the Cedar Lingiari in terms of you know given we have a big Aboriginal population and you know our arguments we spoke out on it in terms of the bill and its inadequacies and uh, I think the outcome is good for all Aboriginal Territorians. I do want to just lastly bring to you a point that was made by Senator Jackie Lambie when she was saying that she was not going to support this bill. She said, quote, that laws may have had a bigger impact on the Indigenous community than everyone else, but that didn't make the law racist. All the law was proposing to do was to ask for identification and that wasn't racist to ask for identification. She kind of also pointed out an example of if you needed to, you know, give out your identification at the airport. What do you make of that suggestion from Senator Lambie? Well, I think the question's got to be about the integrity of our um, electoral system and, you know, I don't think there's been any fraud or major fraud across this country and I think we got one of the best, you know, electoral systems in the world. You'd have to say that enrolment and uh, participation in federal and territory elections are not good. Um, what would you want to see implemented to try and get more people out to vote from remote communities or the Aboriginal community in the territory? Yeah, I think, you know, previously the Australian Electoral Commission used to have a whole unit that looked after, you know, engagement and enrolment of Aboriginal people on the electoral roll. But, you know, as I understand it at the moment, there's approximately 16,000 Aboriginal people who are eligible to vote in the Northern Territory but are not on the roll. And there were some amendments previously that allowed um, the increase or the eligibility and the enrolment, which was a, a good initiative to grow the electoral role in terms of Aboriginal people's participation. I would also note that the Electoral Commission has just been uh, in receipt of some funding from the Commonwealth Government to look at initiatives to um, encourage Aboriginal participation in the electoral process and we'd be, you know, grateful and hopeful that, you know, that money could be rolled out here in the Northern Territory to assist us in terms of um, getting more Aboriginal people on the electoral roll. And part of the problem previously is that, you know, in terms of the electoral roll and having people on there was had no postal address or the community store, um, there's no streets or, you know, in terms of having that information. And I think, you know, with the recent announcement to get rid of that bill, uh, I think it's been good for... Um, Aboriginal Northern Territory people. I just encourage, if you're not enrolled and you're eligible, 
get on the roll and make your boat count. Have your say. It's important you get on the roll and you, you vote. <laughs> Mr Turner, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma Radio. No Appreciate worries. It. No worries. Look forward to speaking to you. That was the Central Land Council CEO, Les Turner, speaking with Karma's Philippe Perez. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices and we'll be right back shortly. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. The Alice Springs campus of Charles Darwin University has installed the Northern Territory's first purple bench, continuing a worldwide movement to honour domestic violence victims. The bench is part of a movement that began in Canada in 2015 and was made locally. It has a plaque installed on it with information on where to get support if they or someone they know is affected by family violence. Carmas Philippe Perez spoke with Community Services Lecturer in the College of Health and Human Services at Charles Darwin University, Wendy Lever-Henderson. Wendy Lever-Henderson, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma. Thank you for having me. This Purple Bench project has a history throughout the world, but it's the first to be uh, installed here in the Northern Territory. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be here at the CDU campus? Sure. Well, I first came across the Purple Bench project in Broome, actually. I took a group of students from Victoria over to Broome to do their placements. And whilst we were there, they launched a Purple Bench. And I just read up about it and I thought it was an amazingly fantastic idea and I feel really passionate about domestic family violence prevention. So when I uh, started working at Charles Darwin University, I spoke to my manager and asked, would it be possible for us to get one and have that funded and launch the first Purple Bench for the Northern Territory at CDU, um, Alice Campus. So, and... uh, yeah. For our listeners, can you maybe explain the idea of the bench or what's behind a bench? Is a bench is a bench. And <laughs> yes, people that's can sit right. on it. But there's obviously <laughs> meaning to the purple bench. Absolutely. So in 2015, uh, this lady lost her daughter, unfortunately, uh, as a result of family violence. So her daughter was murdered and um, she wanted to have a memorial and something, you know, to sort of remember her daughter from or by. And so... Yeah, so the very first purple bench um, in Canada happened in 2015 and it's it's bright purple and it has a plaque on it in memory of people who have lost their lives as a result of family violence and it also has the crisis number on it. So, yeah, I thought it was really relevant um, to have one and very important to have one in, in Alice Springs and I'd like to see them everywhere. Is there a significance to the colour purple? Well, yes, it's um, it's like a spiritual colour. It's a female strength colour. So, yeah, there, there was actually a specific paint that I had to use on the bench uh, called Purple Wisdom. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so that's the significance, basically. And it's also uh, about domestic family violence awareness as well. So, of course, you'd like you know, people at your CDU campus who be aware of this issue and obviously uh, people outside of the campus who may not be students or lecturers or mm-hmm. anyone associated with the university to be aware of this issue. It's. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get your points of view as to how you think this project will help towards getting people to start that conversation in the community. 
Yes, well, the, the actual being um, bright purple, the actual bench um, at the campus is quite noticeable. It stands out. And then when people go and sit on it, it's got the plaque with the memorial there and uh, the numbers there. So my hope is that people go and sit under the on the bench under the tree and they have a look at the plaque and they, you know, they reflect on, well, people actually are dying one woman a week in Australia, in fact, as a result of des- domestic family violence. And and maybe they will reflect on their relationships and, um, you know, do a bit of an assessment on whether they're healthy or unhealthy. And if they feel they're unhealthy, um, hopefully use one of the numbers or at least write them down and use them at a later date. So that's the first step. But I guess... I'd yeah, as I said, I'd like to see purple benches everywhere, particularly in uh, really prominent public spaces um, all around the Northern Territory and all around Australia. So, so they don't have to necessarily be confined to university spaces. Not at all, no. I mean, Charles Darwin University has really been fantastic and they've committed to have one at the Catherine and the Casarina campus already, which is amazing. But no, like they're, they're pretty much designed to be in, in prominent public places so that, so that it's raising awareness and people are having those conversations. I'd like to get your point of view in terms of how much discussion there is currently in this town surrounding this issue, how much... Uh, there needs to be more action on it and I suppose the university's role in that. Sure. Well, the Purple Bench is definitely a first step for the university and they'll continue, um, uh, you know, to have uh, other benches and and we also are offering free education sessions, one's next week on the 8th. So to the general members of the public, it'll be focused around safety and uh, recognising unhealthy relationships and the signs uh, yeah, cycle of violence and things like that. So, and um, with the other benches that will happen at CDU in Catherine and Casarina, they'll be actually made by apprentices and I'm going to do education sessions with the young, predominantly male apprentices because it's everybody's responsibility and it can happen in any culture, in any class of people, in any socioeconomic, any type of relationship same-sex relationships, all sorts of relationships that can happen. Um, so, yeah, um, I think there's a, you know, the local agencies predominantly um, focused on um, trying to prevent and also service those affected by family violence doing an absolutely amazing job and they have done for years. They're probably always under-resourced, so we need more funding um, to do early intervention and prevention, obviously. And, um, yeah, so they, they could always do with um, with that extra funding for sure. In terms of um, how much conversation and discussion is happening, everybody in those organisations and general uh, community services as well are always flying the flag you know, to try and uh, raise awareness of the issue. There was the Reclaim the Night event um, last Friday night and it's and on the 25th of November was the day one 
Oh, it was the um, International Day of Elimination of Family Violence and that was the first day of 16 days of activism against family violence. So this, these 16 days up until the 10th of December, um, I hope that it's a hot topic and everybody's com- you know, conversing about it and in that uh, more awareness is raised as a result. So, yeah. Your role at the university is a community services lecturer in the College of Health and Human Sciences. Uh, I would assume that a lot of this um, dialogue and community awareness of domestic violence is infused in your work as a lecturer as well. Is it? Um, Absolutely. How much does it infuse your work? Yeah, look, uh, you know, in preparing people to work in community services, uh, we have to prepare them to come across family violence because it's it's a reality that they will. So uh, I embed it wherever I can. Absolutely. 100%. So amongst all your time at CDU and doing your work, what do you think has shifted in terms of the attitudes in how we discuss domestic violence and family violence? Well, I think uh, Rosie Betty did a fantastic, um, you know, she's done a lot of work in campaigning um, to raise awareness of family violence and in 2015 was awarded the um, Australian Award for her work in that area. Um, So that really kind of... uh, you know, gave uh, a lot of energy to the topic and raised a lot of awareness. And I think from there, it's it's quite, it's grown quite a lot Um, in the recent times, um, everything that happened in Parliament and, you know, the the highlights being put on uh, sexual assault in the, um, you know, the Say No campaign and everything like that. So it's all part of the same uh, fight, if you like, uh, because it's all about power and control. And, um, yeah, so I think things are moving in the right direction 100%. It's just a slow rolling wheel. At a local level, do you think things are going well as well? Yeah, look, um, as I said, there's a lot of people out there fighting to raise awareness, um, but unfortunately, we've we've got a really high rate of family violence, and that's really quite sad. And and you know, there, there's been a death um, in the last months um, in the area, as you're probably aware, more than aware. And um, yeah, I believe four for the year. So that's really quite alarming. Um, I think it's a really complicated issue. It's a really multifaceted issue. It's not just about family violence. There's a lot of peripheral issues that, that you know, contribute and, and um, you know, increase risk for people. So I think because it's a complicated issue, it, it really requires a complicated uh, sort of... Um, approach um, to combating it and improving the situation. So um, it's tricky to answer that. That was Community Services Lecturer in the College of Health and Human Services at Charles Darwin University, Wendy Lever-Henderson. Charles Darwin University also will be holding free public information sessions on family violence at the Charles Darwin University's Alice Springs campus. That will be starting on December 8th, uh, and you can contact the university for more information on those. And if you need urgent assistance in relation to family violence, please contact 1800RESPECT on one 737 
732. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices, and when we come back, we'll be hearing about Children's Ground and their launch of a series of Arundel language picture books. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury, and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices this Friday afternoon. Well, Mbundu-based Aboriginal-led charity Children's Ground has launched a series of Arundel language picture books to help local children engage with their language, culture and history. As part of the launch, the charity set up a pop-up shop with cards all designed by First Nations artists and educators. Senior Arundel educators Felicity Hayes and Veronica Turner told a large gathering of onlookers at the launch that the books and new resources will empower young Aboriginal people. My name is Felicity uh, Hayes. I am Kumaravitri, Petitioner from Bandwell Springs. My home is Yakaraja, Whitegate Town Camp, and I work as a senior educator at Mbaganal. I would like to acknowledge my own people, Karanda Nation of Bandwell Springs. We have fought hard to keep our culture alive and strong. I pay my respects to all First Nations people, past, present, we continue to fight for the rights and education, inspiring our future generations to continue to struggle. Program. 
with all the knowledge that has been told for generations and generations by great, great leaders, our elders and ancestors. Kala, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Amelia, and Veronica, and Felicity. Uh, we've got three books here now. We're going to do some reading. Hello, what uh, again? Um, book in that. Shirley Turner, yeah, you're with Chinna Boy, and that. But I'm tired of my man. McGrath's dam. Paul Mutter of Waraga, Mabu Mabu. And yet, I'm reading it again. If you are able to look at these books, they're on the front here. And uh, the Cherokee Chinnaman, all these books, if you are able to look at Color. Hey, hello. I was just pushing to this this morning. <laughs> but uh, I really don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it as a part of my family as well. Now, as you know, children's friend and a curator has always been out in the families, organizations. Yeah, Color. It's where we meet, where families and friends gather around. This is the country where our grandfathers walked, with their dance, their stories, their songs. It's a history place, Afmara, the country where we belong. Yeah. 
second hour, so the book is called Alarm, and it's McGrath Dam on the North Key Highway. Yeah, Kala, thank you. That was senior Aranda educators Felicity Hayes and Veronica Turner speaking at this week's launch of Aranda Language Picture Books by Children's Ground. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices, and when we come back, we'll be hearing from uh, Carmen's Philippe Perez with a bit of a uh, news update from this week. You're listening to Strong Voices. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hey, good afternoon. You're listening to Strong Voices. It's around uh, seven minutes to three o'clock here in Alice Springs. And I'm now joined by Karma's Philippe Perez for the news wrap from the week. Uh, good afternoon, Philippe. Wetter. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Well, obviously some sad news today in regards to uh, the latest COVID information with the Northern Territory recording our very first COVID death, Philippe. Just walk us through some of the stuff that's come out. Yeah, very sad news today. An Aboriginal woman in her 70s who was from the Binjari community has passed away from COVID-19 in the Royal Darwin Hospital. Um, She was unvaccinated and had battled symptoms for over the past two weeks, um, but her conditions worsened pretty quickly yesterday. And uh, as you say, it's the first death from the virus in the Northern Territory pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, yeah, it's it's basically come to pass as to what could happen if you get infected by COVID-19. And I suppose it's a, a day of reality, as the Chief Minister said in his uh, press conference this morning. Um, he, he said, quote, we have always known the threat of COVID and we've seen the tragedy of it occur interstate and overseas, but um, it's now arrived. Um, and he also kind of forewarned that there will be more deaths uh, in upcoming weeks and months. Um, I mean, you know, it, it is probably a turning point in terms of us now having to live with COVID. But I suppose in a way, considering that the Northern Territory has been sheltered so much from the virus, we haven't had, we haven't seen that effect uh, come into our communities um, until today. And uh, I I suppose it's just a wake up call for people to get vaccinated and try and uh, protect their communities. And just on that, in terms of vaccinations, Philippe, do have we sort of been hearing much more information in terms of how that vaccination rate is going here in the Northern Territory? Well, vaccination rates continue to climb. I did hear a report that Larger Manu, who you may have heard, well, earlier this week, had a positive case yesterday um, in a man, a 45-year-old man who had been dub- fully vaccinated. Um, the community of uh, large Manu have uh, pretty much uh, all gotten their, their either their first or second jab, and I heard uh, the chief executive of the board of the Catherine East Health Clinic, whose name escapes me unfortunately, say that there is a big difference now between the first and second dose rates of people who live in large Manu. It's ninety percent first dose now, but forty percent double vaxxed. But in the last week or so, or last couple of weeks, there's been an absolute exponential rise of people wanting to get at least one jab, um, whether it is their first or second, and that's reflected in those data sets. So that second rate of the fully vaxxed uh, percentage rate will probably be expected to jump up 
in upcoming weeks. Um, so it is um, uh, having a deep effect in communities, and there was also reports that you know vaccination rates were way up in um, in remote communities throughout the Northern Territory because of this outbreak. And considering it's now in the communities, we are seeing people taking action. Um, if I looked at, if I remember the federal data uh, earlier this week, the Barclay had gone past the 40% mark for fully vaxxed, uh, you know, population, which is something it was kind of struggling to get to, but now it's gone past and it's kind of quickening itself up to yeah. higher rates. And of course, um, you know, talking about, of course, the new variant that we've mm. been seeing across the, the country, have we heard much more in terms of news about that? Well, uh, in New South Wales, I believe there's been nine Omicron variants that have been confirmed in the community. And uh, as far as I'm aware, that state is only got that variant. Um, there were some concerns that it could easily be uh, spread to Victoria, uh, but I did read a report this morning saying that that's not been confirmed yet or there's been no cases of Omicron. Uh, so uh, from what I understand, the majority of those Omicron uh, cases are in quarantine, and I believe one or two actually were spread within the community. So there is uh, a bit of anxiousness about it all. Um, I suppose there's been... Uh, I won't go through all the restrictions, but we've seen uh, certain states kind of put slightly harder restrictions on other states where Omicron has been put in place. And the country, as a federal state, has actually um, hardened its border with many countries in the southern um, African continent to kind of still stem that flow of that particular variant. But in saying that, uh, the science looked like that Omicron is a mild variant and that many of the symptoms is aren't as bad as what it could be feared. Um, I suppose a lot of people... Uh, I heard an interesting comment also earlier today saying, well, the country is nearly at 90% full vaccination rates as well. So... Uh, I suppose we are getting to that tipping point of like having to know that we are living with COVID as a whole society, regardless of where you live, remotely or in town, um, or 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 um, uh, and just basically dealing with it and getting back to a normal life. And just finally, quickly as well, Philippe. Of course, as well, there was concerns about the variant in terms of. Uh, booster shots for people as well and I understand there's been some stuff as well in terms of um, you know it's looking like we're getting closer in terms of the uh, vaccines being approved for younger children as well yeah yeah and that's something that Michael Gunner actually referenced in his press conference this morning that um, in January uh, which is probably I think early January they're going to find approval for Pfizer to give to people from 5 to 11 up and that particularly for the Northern Territory, is very important because Michael Gunner has made it, it a thing that he wants to ensure that people from five up, uh, 80% fully dosed, is a mark that he wants to actually open up our borders in the Northern Territory. Um, booster shots are being available now in the Territory as well um, and across Australia. Um, I'm getting my one next week, I believe. So it, though people in the Northern Territory, if they got their COVID shot quite early on, people probably 
in Northern Territory should look into getting their COVID shot fairly soon. Well, definitely then. For people out there, make sure you, uh, you know, give your health services a call if mm. it, it's time to go and get your third dose. One quick thing I just want to also mention that South Australia has seen just a growing COVID cluster as well. None of these cases mm. are Omicron, but it should be noted that um, the Northern Territory has put some restrictions on people coming in from South Australia as well. And uh, I believe it's seven days of quarantine if you are coming in anywhere from Australia. So, you know, friends from uh, remote regions in South Australia or the APY lands should be aware that um, if you're intending to come to the Northern Territory, you, you may be required to undertake uh, either home or hotel quarantine. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Philippe, thank you so much for joining us here on Strong Voices. No worries, Carl. Thank you very much. And thank you all for tuning in to Strong Voices this week. If you missed any of the stories or would like to listen back to the program, you can head to the Karma website. We'll of course, have the stories up there and also have a podcast of the show. That's karma.com.au. Thanks once again and have a great weekend.